here. I'm one of the pastors here, just in case you don't know who I am. Uh, thanks to Martin for leading in our service. Uh, as we come to God's Word tonight, um, again, we're kind of in between series, so this is a one-off, and what we're going to do is look at a ch- uh, passage in the book of 2 Peter, so if you'd like to turn there with me, um, you'd be really helped by following along as we go tonight. It's 2 Peter chapter 3. If you are new to the Bible, uh, then grab one of the ready burgundy ones around you and look for page 1223, close to the back, 1223, it's 2 Peter chapter 3. Let's pray together as we come to God's word. Uh, Lord, we pray with the psalmist, deal with us, your servants, according to your love, and teach us tonight your decrees. We are your servants. Please give us discernment that we may understand your statutes. It is time for you to act, O Lord. In this time, your law is being broken, but we love your commands more than gold, more than pure gold. And because we consider your precepts right, we desire to know the path that you have set for us, the kind of things, kind of evils that we should hate, the paths that we should steer clear of. So help us in this, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, ever since uh, uh, Jesus was speaking to his disciples prior to his ascension to the right hand of the Father in glory, Uh, These have been what are known as the last days. His followers from that point right up to to today really have this expectation and had it back then that the return of Jesus Christ is an imminent thing. That it will happen soon. But the fact that it's not happened quite yet has made Christians throughout the centuries the brunt of many jokes. I was interested that the BBC ran an article last year entitled The End Is Nigh. It wasn't something that a Christian said, it was something that Bob Geldof said. Bob Geldof is well known for his concern for humanitarian issues and he was at a youth summit in South Africa. The article said that he might as well have walked on stage wearing a sandwich board saying the end is nigh For he said, the human race might have as little as 17 years before it's hit by a mass extinction event. Interestingly, the article paid no attention to Geldof's concerns about global food shortages and the like. No, they laughed it off as alarmist. And instead, they published an article asking Why is it that people make such bold predictions about the end of the world? The article quickly turned to predictions offered by religious groups. It mentioned the Mayan prophecy, of course, the Mayan prophecy that predicted that the end of the world would come on the 21st of December 2012. And again, the article mocks and laughs at the idea, mocking those like this chap here from China who built and sold quite a few Armageddon-proof pods to protect you from the fire and the destruction that is to come. Big big versions of like a concrete hamster ball, isn't it, really? But the article says, the day passed without event. The world, even last-minute Christmas shopping, continued uninterrupted. 
unfortunately, some of these predictions seem to come from those who would call themselves Christians. It's not that we don't think the end of the world is coming. It is coming. It's just that we don't know when it's going to be. But some people claim that they do know. If they say that, if you hear people saying that, put your fingers in your ears. They don't know. We're here, the most recent one being the US radio evangelist called Harold Camping. And Camping basically told over the radio at first, millions of people in America, the Day of Judgment would begin on Saturday, May 21st, 2011, interestingly, in his own words, at about, (laughs) wasn't very precise, was it? 6 p.m. He said that he had arrived at that date by a very careful calculation, the complexity of which would have crashed Google computers. Now, people gave millions to broadcast warnings over radio waves and on posters on billboards, but the day came, the day went. No blood red moon, no earthquakes, no dark skies, no Jesus. A few weeks after the predicted doomsday, Camping said, I am flabbergasted. I was probably wrong. Probably. And again, though, the BBC article laughs off Camping's claims actually by exalting atheism. This is another good reason to forget about this God stuff. And it highlighted, actually, that atheists all over the U.S. were holding parties called Non-Judgment Day Parties, the best damned party ever. Why? To celebrate the backpedaling of stupid Now, I'd say that this kind of attitude regarding an end point is widespread in a city that we want to reach with the gospel, and therefore we must be aware of it. People find the notion of a judgment day to come a very hard thing to believe. People then laugh it off as alarmist. People say, the world just goes on uninterrupted, as it has done for decades and centuries. As a result, we might be tempted, well, maybe to second-guess it. Did we get it wrong? Did we mishear it? Or perhaps we'll not talk about it and therefore fail to impress upon people actually the urgency of repenting of sin and following Christ. Now, I'm giving you all that backstory to say that I think that's what Peter's concern is as we come to 2 Peter chapter 3. People back then were mocking believers... And they are, who, who trusted in this apostle's teaching concerning what they called the power and coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And even verses 3 and 4, as we'll read in a second, kind of run a little bit like the BBC article. Watch for it. They laugh it off as alarmist. They say the world goes uninterrupted. This is why Peter writes to remind them of some very important truths. And it's the very same reason why we come to it tonight. Let's read 2 Peter 3. Dear friends, this is now my second letter to you. I have written both of them as reminders. In other words, don't forget these things. To Reminders to stimulate you to wholesome thinking. I want you to recall the words spoken in the past by the holy prophets and the command given by our Lord and Savior through your apostles. First of all, you must understand that in the last days, scoffers will come. Scoffing and following their own evil desires. They will say, where is this coming? This coming he promised. Ever since our fathers died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. 
but they deliberately forget that long ago by God's words the heavens existed and the earth was formed out of water and by water by these waters also the world of that time was deluged and destroyed by the same word the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men but do not forget this one thing dear friends with the Lord a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years are like a day the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise as some understand slowness he is patient with you not wanting anyone to perish but everyone to come to repentance but the day of the Lord will come like a thief the heavens will disappear with a roar the elements will be destroyed by fire and the earth and everything in it will be laid bare. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. That day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire and the elements will melt in the heat but in keeping with his promise, we are looking forward to a, a new heaven and a new earth, the home of righteousness. So then, dear friends, since you are looking forward to this, make every effort to be found spotless, blameless, and at peace with him. Bear in mind that the Lord's patience means salvation, just as our dear brother Paul also wrote with the wisdom that God gave him. He writes the same way in all his letters, speaking in them of these matters. His letters contain some things that are hard to understand, which ignorant and unstable people distort as they do the other scriptures to their own destruction. Therefore, dear friends, since you already know this, be on your guards so that you may not be carried away by the error of lawless men and fall from your secure position, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Saviour Jesus Christ. To him be glory, both now and forever. Amen. This is the word of God. So Peter is writing to give us some reminders, as he says in verse 1. Some people are overlooking certain things, and he's saying, listen, brothers and sisters in the church that he's writing to you, I want you to remember these things. I'm going to give you two things tonight. I'm going to crash it all down all into two. One, the one day God will return in judgment. That's the first point. I'll give you the second point when we come to it. One day God will return in judgment. He mentions in the text that there are some things that mockers forget. They deliberately, the other, another word you could use for that forgetting is overlooking. Verse 5 says they overlook this, that God has made and rules the world. They deliberately forget that long ago by God's word the heavens came into being and the earth was formed out of water and by water what Peter's saying is the first thing scoffers ignore that the world was made by God not with tools not with hands but with words and this ignorance is not to be confused with a lack of knowledge necessarily Romans 1 uh, 18 to 20 highlights that for us and again points to what Peter points to here that it's a deliberate thing it's a willful suppression of certain things people know these things but suppress truth 
by their wickedness. They overlook that God made and rules the world, and they deliberately overlook that God has judged the world before. Now, Peter takes us back to the beginning to show us basically how the end will come about. He, he highlights for us creation, that in Genesis 1, God's word brought about that act of creation, heavens, earth, made. But in Genesis chapter 6 and 7, God's word, his judgment pronounced from his word, from his mouth, effectively brought about an act of de-creation. That's what he's saying here, Peter. In verse 6, the world fell, if you like, the world fell back for a time into the watery chaos of Genesis 1. And the reason, it says in verse 6, by these waters also the world of that time was deluged and destroyed. He's referring to the flood. What was the reason for this act of judgment? Well, Genesis 6, 5 tells us plainly, the Lord saw how great man's wickedness on earth had become and that every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time. That is damned. So God has stepped in with an epic judgment before. According to his word, he will do it again. That's Peter's main point by highlighting creation and then the deluge and destruction of the flood. So Peter says, no matter what people are saying, when they laugh it off as alarmist or just say, hey, the days go on, the weeks go on, the years go on interrupted, nothing's happening, everything's the same as it is before. Peter's saying, don't be swayed by the mockers. God is true to his promise and he said he's going to do it. He's proved that before. Look at God's track record is effectively what Peter is saying. Back then, he did it with water. Well, he highlights in this passage, next time he'll do it with fire. Verse 7, look with me. By the same word, in other words, his promise, the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. So it's something that not only impacts the world in itself, but those who do not believe in Jesus. So Peter's trying to make clear for us. There is a day coming, in other words, when he will vindicate his name, and there will be no atheists on that day. There will be no agnostics on that day, no fence-sitting. Everyone will know that Jesus is Lord. So Peter's encouragement in this, I think, when people are, he said, these people are overlooking this, but don't you forget this. Don't be silenced. When people laugh off their warnings as alarmists, trust in God's word. He does what he says he will do. His track record proves it. They say everything goes on as it has before. The laws of nature are constant and unchanging. The sun comes up. The sun goes down. The seasons come. The seasons go. Everything stays the same. Chill out. But Peter says they're wrong. They're wrong. Natural laws are administered by God. But these three examples of creation, flood, and day of judgment, according to his word, show that God, when God chooses to raise his voice and speak the end, it will be, in fact, a terrible surprise for many. And sadly, too late for many to backtrack. The mockers do get one thing right. As I mentioned towards the start, it does look like to some that, that God is delayed in a sense. I've heard people say this. If you read the New Testament, it's plain to see that they expected to see Jesus return in their lifetime, but that didn't happen. 
Well, here's a New Testament passage which tells us not to worry about that effectively. Because here is Peter nearing his own death, which Jesus had already foretold for him. And he's not thinking he's wrong or he's made a mistake or he's been duped. No, he tells the church why God has not pressed the button and why he is apparently relaxed about the timing of Jesus' return. And this is what Christians are to remember. This is what he goes on to say. The reason God delays is to give people in the world, the ungodly, who are facing this destruction, the chance to repent. Verse 8, Peter deals with what he calls God's slowness. And you can almost hear the mockers in the background. Why is your God not returned yet? Do you worship a snail? Is he slow like a sloth? Well, Peter responds really with quite calm words in verse 9. Look with me. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. I think there's a love in Peter's words here, just as there should be in ours. He says, instead, he, God, is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Now, that's the reason for his what people think is an apparent delay is no delay at all he knows exactly when Jesus is coming back it's to give people the chance to ask for forgiveness so his delay is an act of mercy do you understand that that every day that Jesus relents from coming is a day of salvation it's a chance to turn from sin and put your trust in God how tragic it is then that mockers take God's patience the very thing that has given them every chance of salvation and turns it against God as evidence that Jesus isn't coming what will it be like for them on the day of judgment when God says why did you take my gift of time for repenting and use it as an argument for unbelief Peter says listen believers brothers and sisters don't be unnerved or rocked by mockery Never forget the eternality of God. The foreverness of God and his existence. The Bible teaches us that his perspective on time is different from our own. As Peter says in verse 8, Do not forget this one thing, dear friends, with the Lord a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years like a day. As we saw earlier, he's quoting from Psalm 90. A psalm which effectively says God is eternal. From everlasting to everlasting, he is God. This is the perspective from which a thousand years can look like a day. We are told that God is patient. This is really what's going on. But one day he will rise and he will come. And that final day will be a day very, very unlike today. Look at me, verse 10 tells us that the day of the Lord will come first of all it comes without warning that's why he says the day of the Lord will come like a thief and that's the trouble with thieves right they don't tell you when they're going to rob you you walk into your house one day and everything's been turned upside down it's sudden it takes you by surprise that's how it will be with the coming of the Lord that's what Jesus himself said in Matthew chapter 24 verses 37 to 39 he says As it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. For in the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage. Up to the day Noah entered the ark. 
and they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. That, says Jesus, is how it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. It comes without warning. And the second thing Peter tells us, it comes with cataclysmic power. What is the most dreadful thing you've ever seen? The most terrible thing that you've witnessed with your eyes. The images and videos of the 2004 Boxing Day tsunami always fill me with dread. I actually can't believe people post things like that on Facebook or YouTube and things like that. It's just awful. The sight of that water leaving the bay when I first saw it on the news to mount up a mile out to sea and crash with devastating force on the land. It's awful. But actually even that, it seems, will be nothing compared to the, as Peter describes it, the disappearing of the heavens with a great roar. The elements being destroyed by fire and the earth and everything in it laid bare. Can you get your head around that? I can't. I mean, the whole thing is unimaginable. But human imagination is no measurement of what God can or will do. He's going to do it. And my encouragement for you, if you're here tonight and you're not a Christian, we're so glad you're here with us. You're so welcome. But the reason why we open up our Bibles and read from passages like this is to help us to share with other people that this day is coming and we want people to be ready for it. And I wonder if you are. God has made believing in this person called Jesus Christ the determining factor in whether or not that day will be a day of judgment for you or a day of joy for you, a day of salvation. And what it requires of us all in this world and all in this room is that we put our faith and trust in Jesus. We believe when he died on the cross, he died for our sins. To take God's wrath upon himself so that we don't have to pay the price for it. In fact, by believing in him, what happens is that we are credited with the perfect life of Jesus Christ for ourselves. God looks upon us and declares us not guilty on account of the fact that Christ's life is our life. Have you put your faith and trust in him? I have no shame in saying that there's a day coming that will be very unlike today. A day that proved to be too late for anyone who has not put their faith and trust in you. And you may scoff or mock at that idea, but I hope you see from the text that it's otherwise true and should be taken seriously. Put your trust in him. He's amazing. He's made a great provision for us. And what about us as Christians? Peter goes on to highlight for us that this day, this coming day, this day that we look forward to, an inevitable day, is, has an impact on our today. So as we look forward, it matters now what we think about this and how we live our lives. Verse 11 says to us, since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? Uh, in the Greek, that, that question is effectively how should you exist? Like, what is the entirety of your life to look like 
on account of the fact that there is a day coming that will be very unlike today. Well, he calls on us, Peter, uh, to be holy. We see this in verse 11 and 14, and in between, actually. His encouragement for us is effectively to live like you belong to that future day. Live like you belong to what he calls the home of righteousness. And I suppose this is a surprising thing in verses 12 to 13, if you look with me. Peter says something where it says, having already said that the day of judgment is a terrible day, he now says there's actually something wonderful about this day to come. This destruction of the heavens by fire and the elements that will melt in the heat is, it seems, the means by which God brings about what he has promised before, many times in scripture, the new heavens and new earth. And this seems to be the event where all ungodliness, all of the effects of sin are gone. Sin brought death, sickness, pain, it's all gone. And I think that's why Peter describes this place in such warm terms. It's a home of righteousness. I I think that's my favorite description of heaven, the new heaven and new earth. It's a home. Uh, It's a place to live, a place where we'll live forever. It's a home of righteousness. It's where everything that is good and pure and true lives. No more sin. No more of the effects of sin. No more guilt, no more shame, the disappointment of stumbling into sin again and again or seeing the effects of our sin and the way it impacts on other people, maybe a spouse or children or anyone else round about us. Our sin has an impact on plenty of people all around us, but that will be gone. We'll be in perfect relationship with each other. What a day that will be. That will be amazing. But this, this is what makes it really the home of righteousness for me. It's the place where God dwells with his people. In Revelation 21.3, we read, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold. In other words, everybody, look. The dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them. That's what makes this place the home of righteousness. And Because the day of the Lord then is the day we go home. If we put our faith and trust in Jesus, the day of the Lord, that day of judgment is the day we go home. So if you belong then, as you look forward to this, if you put your faith and trust in Jesus, if you belong to this house, Peter is saying, conduct yourself in a certain way. Do you ever have any of your parents say that to you? Now, when you go out there, remember who you're representing. Now, you know, I've said that to my own children when we go for dinner somewhere. Now, just remember. Well, it's the same here. If the day of the Lord is coming, how should you exist? Verse 11 says you ought to live holy in godly lives. Be holy. Give ourselves to righteousness not to darkness and ungodliness we as Christians above all people in this world should be those who recognize the temporary nature of this place the temporary nature of this body and remember that there is a time coming when everything will be made new that means that we must pay attention now to the kind of things in our lives that mar our lives And draw our gaze away from that looking forward to the home of righteousness to living for this world 
and all its pleasures. We must be those who like, in effect, spiritual gardening. We must be good at pulling up the weeds of our sinfulness. We must not be worldly and live for the pleasures of this world, but really for the pleasures of the next. In one sense, we need to treat this life like a travel lodge or a premier inn. Perfectly satisfied with the travel lodge and its accommodation, remembering and considering it as a travel lodge, but putting out of your mind the very idea of making it your home. Would you ever like to live permanently in a travel lodge? Same with this life. Same with this world. Same with this body. Same with this existence. We must work hard in pursuing holiness, not only to pull up the weeds of sin, but also to move towards that mindset where we're living for something that is to come. This is temporary. It's a mobile home. That's all it is. Now, I don't know about you, but I think you're probably like me. I face the daily struggle to remember that what I live for is actually eternal and not temporal. Do you share that struggle? Peter says in verse 14, since you're looking forward to this, make every effort. In other words, put in the hard work. Make every effort to be found spotless, blameless, and at peace with him. He's already said in chapter 1 that this, this effort, this drivenness that we need to give towards holiness and Christ-likeness is actually something that God supplies the power for. He's the one who, by his Holy Spirit, helps us in this endeavor, so we're not on our own in that regard. But the question remains of us, are we putting in that effort? Are we treating God's grace as a license for sin? That's a faulty view. Are we giving ourselves to holiness in such a way that it proves the validity of our reservation in the home of righteousness? As he says, Peter says in chapter 1, make every effort to make your calling and election sure and add to your faith goodness and to goodness knowledge and knowledge self-control and self-control perseverance and to perseverance godliness and to godliness brotherly kindness and to brotherly kindness love but if you possess these qualities in increasing measure they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ in other words we're supposed to see fruit we're supposed to see produce in our lives as we take the power that God supplies and apply ourselves thoroughly to holiness. Do you know why I think many of us struggle with this so much? I think it comes down to, it comes down to many things, but I think a key thing is this. I think it's because we've forgotten the corporate nature of holiness. I think we are quite happy with, with a very privatized faith. You know how the big thing about social media is that you get to put on the front that you want to put out there. You, want, you can display the very character and the, you know, the persona that you want people to see. You're, you're in control of that. You can lay that out. Uh, sometimes I think it's no different in church life. We have a very privatized faith. We never break beyond the casual of our relationships. And therefore, well, we just maintain a level of superficiality in our relationships where we'll never never actually confess our sin to one another, never actually be very honest with each other, never really ask anyone to pray for us about the serious things that we need to pray for, for each other. 
see that in my own experience. I'm pretty sure we all share it. But the Bible teaches us that we need three things in the pursuit of holiness. One, we need the Holy Spirit. He's the very agent of change who conforms us into the very likeness of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we need two other things, the means by which he works. Well, that's two, the Bible, and three, other Christians. And these Christian characteristics that Peter gives us in chapter 1 were not given to Christians in isolation. They're given to Christians in the context of a local church. And here is where I think we would do well to waken up to this, to realize that we will never exist the way God wants us to exist if we are not in healthy discipline relationships with each other. So I think being holy, trying to make sure that we are spotless and blameless for that day to come, living like we belong to the holy house in the new heaven and new earth means that we take time, of course, to consider God's holiness. We are all the more aware of our sinfulness in the light of his majesty and glory, aren't we? We're never sufficiently touched by an awareness of our lowly self until we have first compared himself with his majesty and holiness. That's true. So we need that great view. And then we need a great view of the cross to show us actually how God has made it possible for cowering little dirty, sinful people like us to, to come into his holy and majestic presence and to become like him, be changed into his likeness. So we come to the cross daily. We consider God and his holiness. We consider the cross and what Christ achieved for us in that regard. We do that together in community. We invite people to speak words of correction into our lives and the words of confession from us we speak about our lives so are you in a small group of some kind do you attend fellowship groups are you making the most of those or are those superficial are you in a one-to-one are you making the most of that or is that superficial when was the last time you were really honest there's three or four of you get together when you read the Bible and pray about things what are you praying about those are the real relationships where in close proximity we should have comfort and security actually none of us are better than another we all have our sinful struggles we should all be open and pray for one another we need these things brothers and sisters I'm concerned about these things even in light of the day that is to come because the judgment to come does not allow for a slouchy faith. It should provoke us to pursue holiness with every effort. And maybe this is something that we can pray about together as a church for these days. But the judgment to come doesn't allow for a slouchy faith for, for another reason. Because it's the very idea of this day of judgment that helps us and provokes us to live not only holy lives, but missional lives. In other words, to be urgent with this gospel that we ourselves have received. I think this is what's been highlighted in verses 15 to 16. That we should live in such a way that brings more people into the home of righteousness. With a simple reminder in verse 15, Peter says, Bear in mind that the Lord's patience means salvation. This is how we are to think about this time delay. This is the age of the church. And the church is to glorify God by making disciples of all nations. 
thought recently, regularly, that we live in a city that is full of lost people. 430-ish thousand people lost. Facing the destruction of the ungodly. It's an unpopular thing to say, but according to this word, it's what is true. And we are those, as we've been thinking about recently in our vision, we are those who are like a lifeboat sent out to choppy waters to rescue as many people as we can. We've thought about how we do that. We've been encouraging people to pray for those around us who don't know Jesus that we might have opportunities to share and the courage to share. We've been asking and encouraging folks to think about reading the word one-to-one, using that fantastic little resource that gets us into John's gospel. And I wonder if you've done that. Have you been, has, has it been a prayer point for you? Never mind asking anyone. We cannot allow ourselves to be slouchy in our faith whenever there is a day coming. And we do, do not know when it will be. And this is just Edinburgh. Remind the billions of people in the world who are lost, either following idols or completely unreached, never even heard of the name of Jesus. We must be a church that goes out and reaches out, not only here in this city, but across the world to the nations. We must be a church that continues to go. We must be a church that continues to send people out, or else we're being disobedient truth of the matter is this the great commission that Jesus Christ has given us has neither been rescinded nor fulfilled we still have a responsibility today is a day of salvation and tomorrow if the Lord Jesus relents in coming and God's patience is extended again to a lost world for one more day tomorrow is a day of salvation as well This theology should bring about in us an urgent missiology. Knowing and understanding this should make us really bold and really quick to say, repent and believe. Today's the day to tell you how amazing God is. He does exist. Jesus Christ walked this earth 2,000 years ago. He's an historical figure. Have you got any account for his life and impact does it make any difference to you unbeliever who he is and what he's done we have a gospel to proclaim so be holy brothers and sisters be missional in these days as we look forward to that day when we will be with the Lord Jesus Christ himself in the home of righteousness Look forward to that day. Peter says it a few times. Look forward. Look forward to that day. But live like you belong to the 